So yeah, this is uh, Dharma and recovery. This class has been going on for longer than anybody knows because <laughs> I can't remember when it started, but it's been uh, over a decade for sure. And um, and as I was saying before, you know, it did used to involve uh, people coming to a place together. Uh, you may remember that kind of activity. It was long ago, far away. And yeah, when you said you haven't been there, Liana, I was, you know, sort of, you know, felt sort of funny, but I immediately thought, I don't know why, I immediately thought of getting out of my car and the smell of the bay leaves, the bay trees there are very fragrant. And, uh, you know, just those sensory impacts there um, uh, are, uh, you know, they're, they're very striking. There's a real sense of the, of being there on that land. In any case, uh, here we are in this way, and we are, we are in fact very fortunate that there is technology that allows us all to be together in this way. Um, had, had these circumstances arisen a decade or more ago, there wouldn't have even been any technology and we would have been maybe listening to recordings and things, but uh, here we have something more or less live. So tonight, um, as usual, we'll meditate for about 30 minutes, and I'll, I'll give a, some guided meditation instruction for that, or at least part of that period. And uh, I think we'll have a short break after that, just a bio break, and then I'll give a talk, and, uh, and there'll probably be some time for Q&A at the end. Technically, we have a two-hour session, and sometimes it does go on that long. Um, more dependent upon the questions than anything, but um, maybe not, you know, <laughs> we'll just see. Uh, you know, you're welcome to be here as long as you, as long as you want. It's one advantage of, of Zoom. You don't have to sneak out of the room uh, and have people say, where are they going? Uh, you just <laughs> disappear. Well, anyway. I guess before we start, a couple of uh, things to share with you. Uh, one is that uh, we've got a, uh, a residential retreat scheduled, uh, a Dharma and Recovery retreat, which is a really an intensive meditation retreat with some recovery work blended in. Uh, it's a five-day retreat in May, May 15th to the 20th. And I'm putting a link to the flyer in the chat. So if you're interested in uh, looking into a retreat with me and uh, a couple other teachers, one of whom is on, on here tonight, uh, Debbie, Debbie Darren. Um, it's, uh, these are really wonderful retreats. They're uh, very intimate, relatively small. Um, this, this is in Northern California at a, a, um, it's just a conference center that we we're renting in the Redwoods, beautiful area. And um, you can read the flyer to learn more about it and or contact uh, the, the registrar for that. I also wanted to mention, I'm going to pull out another link that uh, recently, February 28th, so I guess a week ago, um, Tricycle. The, the Buddhist magazine uh, 
took one of my articles, which was an existing article in in a other Buddhist magazine, and put it up. Uh, and it's about using mindfulness to work with difficult emotions. And it, it's actually uh, it's about ten or twelve years old. Uh, and I read it when they asked me if they could use it, and I was surprised how good it was. <laughs> I was like, wow. That's- who wrote that? Uh, actually, there was a uh, wonderful editor at the magazine that was published in Inquiring Mind who, who helped a great deal with it. Um, but I, it, it really, it, it's something that I teach regularly, and it's really um, kind of well elucidated in that article. So if you want to read that later, read it now if you don't want to meditate. <laughs> Just read, although that won't really solve your problem. You need to meditate to solve your problem. Although also meditating won't solve your problem. So I don't know what's going to solve your problem. You're going to have to figure that out. All right. So that's enough of all that. Let us uh, begin with some meditation. So settling into your meditation posture, whatever that might be. Since we are all able to be in our own more private space than ordinary meditation groups uh, can look like anything, anything that works for you. It is really helpful to sit upright if you can. If, if that's not really comfortable or workable for you, please be, be as comfortable as you need to be. Just recognize that, you know, lying down or sort of kicking back too much can kind of cause drowsiness. So might catch a little nap in here. Ileana, you can go ahead and take a nap now. So <laughs> she was telling me before she was trying to take a nap before the class. So yeah. you've been working hard. So as you settle into your posture, you can close your eyes or just lower your gaze. Really at this point, no reason to be looking at the screen. I'm not that great looking, especially. <laughs> Uh, my birthday's coming up, so I could tell you how old I am. But really, we want to turn our attention inward. And starting by just feeling our body sitting here or lying, whatever posture, and just we really want to start to be grounded really. Kind of bring the the mind into this moment, into this reality. And so the body is really the kind of most solid form of how we experience reality. It's a good place to start, just feeling yourself sitting. You know, where are your arms? your hands, your feet, letting your shoulders relax, softening your belly, having a sense of arriving, 
Yeah, the sort of density of the body, just the solidness of it. The traditional Buddhism, we would talk about the earth element that makes the body feel solid. And feeling the breath just kind of a, a general way, feeling how the body is breathing. But also checking in with kind of your mood state. Think of it kind of as an energetic state. It's not really an emotion so much as just a an energy or a felt, felt experience, the feeling tone, breathing with that, opening and allowing whatever feelings are there to just move through as energies, these feelings and sensations, things that are very dynamic, they're in flux, they're not solid. And this is one of the challenges of mindfulness meditation, that the present moment experience is a, a moving target. kind of art to flowing with that, letting our attention flow with the movement of experience. Oh, we practice and experiment to get a feel for what that means and how that works. And then letting awareness of the breath become more central to your experience, starting to feel the sensations of breath, either at the nostrils, the air coming in and out, or, or the more movement of the breath in the belly, chest. The, the breath is clearly in the body and it's a felt experience. Sensations 
constantly change the breath is in impermanent, it's moving. So we take a, a kind of broad and open perspective, not, not trying to grasp onto the breath or push everything else away. more like you know, watching a sunset or watching the clouds, just enjoying the movement of breath, the sensations of breath. Oh, perhaps there's some resistance to to this simplicity. Perhaps the the mind wants more input or more entertainment. You know, it doesn't want to quiet down. So if there's a a lot of energy in the body or in the mind. And, and we actually open wider. So we keep with the breath, but we let all that, whatever form it is, whether it's energy in the body or streams of thought or emotions, We let that move through. If we try to suppress, then we get into a battle. And then we're not meditating, we're, we're struggling. But it's so important to allow whatever is arising. It's not always easy. Sometimes what's arising is unpleasant. But the breath can actually help you to hold that, whatever it is, particularly the unpleasant, can also help you to hold the pleasant. Let's see if that makes sense, if you can kind of connect that. We can gently use the breath to calm the body. Again, not suppressing, but just softly releasing. As the body calms, so too can calm the mind. This doesn't mean we enter into some 
absolute silence or that there's a just kind of settling just by being still, being with the rhythm of the breath and a natural settling happens. Perhaps you'll find yourself completely enveloped in a thought, losing touch entirely with the breath and the body. This can easily happen. On that moment, it's an opportunity to never restart. But even before you restart back to the breath to Notice what that thought was. Take a little inventory of the mind. And then come back. Reconnect with the breath, with the body. When we do this, repeatedly over time. We collect this inventory about our own minds, our habitual thought patterns, the things that really capture, capture us, not just the casual meanderings of mind, but those things that take a grip on us, clamp down on us. And this can give us really important and useful information about where we are stuck, where we become attached, where there are fears, judgments, cravings.
one of the purposes of this meditation practice is to change our relationship to those kinds of thoughts or to any thoughts, to just see them as passing thoughts, words and images, ideas and feelings that come and go. that may or may not be true, may or may not be useful, and do not require us to believe them or to act on them. It is this changing relationship that really allows freedom to come through this practice, no longer trapped or controlled by the thoughts that arise.
one thing to notice about your thoughts is just to see whether they are being unkind to you. Are you being unkind to yourself? And try to let go, try to be kind. Or just at least neutral. It's not helpful, really doesn't even make sense to have unkind thoughts towards ourselves. It's certainly something to become aware of. See if you can let go. Or even bring kind thoughts.
Right. Well, um, I want to take a break, um, and I think I'm going to do it now, and then I'm going to give a talk after that. So let's take uh, seven minutes for a little stretch and bio break, and then come back. Thanks. Yeah. If we were at Spirit Rock, we could ring the bell. I just want to ring a bell. <laughs> and the people who were over by the teapot, the cookies, would come back into the meditation hall. A welcome back. Nice to see people's faces. Thanks for turning cameras back on. Um, yeah, um, I uh, I came back from a, a retreat on Monday. I, I went on a a week long, um, you know, self retreat. We call it. <laughs> Maybe I should call it a no self retreat uh, in more Buddhist, uh, you know, thinking. I rented a. Um, kind of a cabin up the coast. Uh, it's a house that called it's called the Tea House, and it's uh, it's in a sort of a Japanese style. There's a Japanese style, and uh, and so it's it's really like feels like a meditative place, and it's in the in the woods and close to the coast, and really kind of fulfills the uh, the Buddha's admonition to go to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut. And uh, so it was a kind of somewhat empty hut <laughs> and definitely in the forest. And there were, and, uh, you know, I was doing um, six one hour periods of sitting meditation each day. And then um, a couple of walks, a couple of periods of walking meditation, as well as a couple of walking walks and some study and um, very powerful and, and rich and, uh, I've been talking a lot about, I've been working with the Anapanasati Sutta, which is the, the teaching on mindfulness of breathing. And, it, and it's quite a, an amazing teaching and actually kind of complicated in a way, uh, not as simple as, uh, as just being mindful of breathing. Um, but it, it uh, by kind of focusing on that, it's definitely gave me a, a very strong, a strong focus to get concentrated on it. And, you know, and I, I left, um, you know, at the beginning of the, the war in Ukraine and, and, uh, and, and I have a student there. Uh, he's in uh, the, men, the mindfulness teacher training that I'm mentoring in. And, and, uh, and so one of the things that was on my mind that I was avoiding looking at email <laughs> Uh, was was he okay? And uh, and so I, coming back on Monday, I just feel, find myself really opened up 
and and um, and maybe you know a little activated by but definitely you know triggered whatever the term is you know flooded <laughs> by the intensity of of this horrific war and 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 also finding you know that way in which the addictive mind like looks for the drama right and then tries to and kind of like makes it about me or something you know just not so healthy um but uh you know i took a i took a walk the last couple of days i've been taking walks up into the hills uh I live I live kind of at the beginning of the Berkeley Hills and uh, kind of cross the street and, and start to head up. And, you know, it's spring in Berkeley is so beautiful. And spring in Berkeley starts in February, you know, unlike some places. And, and the first blooms uh, come out on like the plum, plum trees and cherry trees. And, uh, and then today there was just this scent of jasmine, like, like they had just like dropped a hole, like one of those helicopters that drops fire retardant. It was like they dropped a whole cask of of jasmine over the city of Berkeley and then smelling that so beautiful and, and then get up to the up to certain spots in the hills where you can see into the bay and yesterday the bay was just sparkling clear and there was a strong breeze and then Today there was this little mist on the bay, and and if you've ever been here and you've seen this, there's uh, it's there's a certain times when the fog comes in, and just you can just see the towers of the Golden Gate Bridge through the fog, and it's so magical and beautiful. Um, and, you know, and I'm thinking, and it's snowing in Ukraine, and, and there's a fine white dust over the debris and the, the tanks that have been disabled, and maybe some bodies that are lying in the street. So it's hard sometimes to, to justify, you know, living in this, in this comfort and safety and so, uh, you know, I've a little bit started trying to think about how I could help this student in Ukraine. And he's, he's took his, he, he, he took his um, wife and daughter out of the country. They drove out and, and they're in Berlin and they're trying to send their daughter to the United States. And, and he's gone back to Ukraine to help other people get out. And then I started thinking, you know, because and he was telling me that, you know, the embassy turned them away and they couldn't get a visa. And then I was thinking, well, who, how could I get, you know, who do I know that has power that could contact the embassy and get, you know, and, and really, again, getting kind of flooded and activated and sort of on edge. And then finally, I kind of just thought there's two million people, you know, like, yeah, it'd be great to help this person, but you know, it's not, it's not possible. This is not, and it, it's like, maybe it would make me feel better, you know, uh, and that I'd done something, 
but you know, not really. So, you know, I'm supposed to teach about Dharma and recovery. <laughs> and sometimes I fail. So I will try not to fail you too badly tonight. Um, because I, I'm sure everyone here, I've been working with the groups, several of my mentor groups this week, and, and everyone was, you know, pretty, pretty flooded as well. And so maybe, maybe you don't want to necessarily hear more, you know. Um, so to, you know, to think about how this relates to addiction is interesting, you know, that seeing the impulses of addiction, what are they, you know, what drives us to addiction, you know, you know fear of feeling, craving to have pleasure. The, sometimes we drink because we're angry. Um, or for excitement, for the thrill. Um, you know, I think about how there's a certain way in which it was like playing with the the edges of control. Can I, how loaded can I get and still be somewhat in control? And it's so like risk taking, you know, that, that there's like a thrill in that, you know, uh, jacked up, you know, like driving. Um, or for me as a musician, like, getting up on stage and, and like seeing, can I still play, you know, even though I'm drunk, yeah. So, you know, the classic way of describing these things in Buddhist terms is greed, hatred, and delusion, right? The greed for a feeling for excitement, the hatred of the feelings that I want to get rid of, the angers and resentments that I'm drinking over or taking drugs over. The delusion, uh, many delusions, you know, many delusions. Delusions that I'm okay, delusions that this is helping me, the delusion that I don't have a problem, the delusion that I'm in control, uh, the delusion that this is going to make my life better. Yeah. And, and of course, what finally ends that is, is seeing through all that, especially seeing through the delusion. You know, we could say that um, denial is kind of the recovery version of delusion, of Buddhist delusion. You know, the, and, and coming out of that and seeing that, no, this is suffering. This is dukkha. This does not work. And realizing that there, there must be another way. And, and, and I think that that realization that there must be another way uh, sort of dawns gradually 
you know, um, what that way is, you know. I mean, for those of us who go to AA or other 12-step or any kind of program, I, I think a lot of us, I know for me, it, it wasn't that I thought, oh, this will solve the problem. It was just like, well, this is where you go. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. That's just where they told me to go. I don't, and, and certainly when I first showed up, I didn't think, oh, okay, great. <laughs> Figured it out now. It was much more like, well, here's a place to go that's not the bar. You know, here's a place to go where people seem to care. And, and I, I am hearing something interesting. And, and there are some people here who seem to have it together. I don't know how they got it together. Uh, and yeah, I guess maybe if I hang out long enough, I'll figure it out too. But it's like, um, you know, the, Stephen Levine has a, his first book, which I was actually looking at recently, called A Gradual Awakening. You know, that's kind of feel what it feels like. And it's very much most a, a Buddhist concept and a recovery concept. It's not like, oh, okay, I'm sober, everything's, I'm awake now, I figured it all out. It's, it's this gradual, gradual process. You know, and actually this, this Sunday, I've been invited to speak at what's sort of a, apparently like a reunion of my home group in Venice Beach, California, it's called Beyond Baroque. Beyond Baroque was, I guess still is an, an art center in Venice Beach that uh, is actually what used to be the city hall. Um, and, uh, and that was my home group uh, from 1986 until I got sober in 85, but I didn't really discover that meeting till about a year. And so from 86 till 91, till I moved to Berkeley. And um, it's very strange to get an email from someone saying, We're ha we have this like secret meeting <laughs> It's a reunion of all the people back from like when you got sober. And they asked me to ask you to speak. You know, beyond Baroque, um, it, it, the, the meeting was in this little performance space, which was painted all black. <laughs> and the meeting would start at 1020 on Sunday mornings. And eventually I, I heard the story that the way the the reason the meeting started at ten twenty was it was it was originally started by some jazz musicians who would show up around ten and jam, and after about twenty minutes they'd have the people would arrive and then they would have the meeting. So it's a good uh, a good birth story, and uh, you know I think it was might have been the last time I was there before I moved up here. I, I did return a couple times in those early years, but this might have been the last time, and I'm going to break the anonymity but of someone, but he's dead. So um, I'm not sure if that's okay, but I think it's okay. And David Bowie was at this meeting, and he was sitting right in front of me. And I raised my hand uh, to say, um, I'm leaving. And uh, I'm going to uh, to go to school in Berkeley, and and I said, you know, I always I always wanted to be a rock and roll star, 
And I never thought that I would go back to school. But I'm happier now than I've ever been. And I'm happier going to school than I ever was as a failed rock and roll star. So soon after that, David Bowie raised his hand and said, I always wanted to get a degree in art history. And I, I really envy you doing that. He said, yesterday I was at Oliver Stone's house watching a screening of the Doors movie. And afterwards I walked into the ocean in Malibu, intent, fully intending to not come out. But something stopped me. So I'm here today to try to get sober. And, you know, you could have knocked me over with a feather. So we spoke after the meeting a little bit. And, and to realize that this guy who I thought had everything that I wanted did not have what I had that I had something he wanted, which was more than the college degree. It was the, at that point, six years of sobriety. And here was a guy who just wanted to commit suicide, you know? Well, that's, that was one of those moments uh, in my recovery when that was very affirming. And it's one of those things that you can imagine it. You can always tell yourself, like, I'm happier than all those fucked up rock and roll stars. But in the back of your mind, you're still thinking like, yeah, but it'd be cool to be a rock and roll star. <laughs> and to just realize in that moment, like, no, actually, because if I had been successful as a musician, it's questionable whether I would have survived, you know. My failure probably saved me because I, I wasn't rich enough or, or um, you know, uh, famous enough to, to do myself enough harm, you know. <laughs> um, I had no intention. That's, I have all these notes on the talk I was going to give. None of this is in, the, in my notes. Not unusual for me. Um, but it is a great lesson, you know, that it's really true. It's not just like a recovery saying. It's like, this is actually the best life you could have. It doesn't really get better than this, you know. There isn't like something out there or some experience out there that's better. I've been reading um, Thich Nhat Hanh kind of a lot lately. That was kind of part of my retreat. He has a beautiful book about the Anapanasati Sutta called Breathe, You Are Alive. You know, and, and, and he's this example of the simple monk, you know, who uh, didn't need anything more than that for his 
fulfillment. Um, and, you know, and talking about Thich Nhat Hanh, and I, I was listening to Jack Cornfield today, kind of as a hoping he would say something to help me <laughs> teach tonight. Actually, someone had mentioned uh, something from his recent talk, and I wanted to hear it, but, um, but he was talking a lot about Thich Nhat Hanh. And, and, and uh, if you've been to my other classes, um, I've been talking a bit about him lately. And, you know, he, the thing that was particularly striking about him was that he seemed so innocent. There was this quality of innocence about him. And this was something, someone who had seen the most profound suffering in Vietnam during the war and who had known, you know, he knew monks who immolated themselves. And, and he, so he knew so much about suffering and yet he seemed innocent. And so you realize like, okay, that's not innocence. It's something else. You know, there's some essence there that he somehow was able to capture. And, uh, Yeah, so so maybe I'll switch gears a little bit if you if you'll bear with me to talk a little bit about um, our world. There's a there was a Buddhist magazine called um, Inquiring Mind, which um, several years ago had to stop uh, publication. But uh, they've managed to um, put all their all their work, all their copies up online, uh, and it's an incredible resource, frankly, uh, uh, because Dharma really it, it does not kind of doesn't have an expiration date on it. It's uh, and and the one issue uh, that I've been looking at a lot lately was called War and Peace. I'm going to put a link in the chat. And if you're interested, you can click on that. So I was looking at, um, there's a, a beautiful uh, article from uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's a great Buddhist monk, uh, reflecting on nonviolence. Um, and uh, and you know, talking about what did the Buddha teach, and then and saying, yeah, the Buddha taught absolute nonviolence, and then he's but then he sort of inquires, like, but is that is that possible? Or and, and you know, he says, yeah, it's possible, but he's not sure that it makes sense for a country that's being invaded to not fight back. So, and apparently I was speaking to the editor of the magazine or corresponding with her. And she was saying that when this issue came out, there was a lot of blowback. A lot of people were very upset that a Buddhist monk would suggest that, yeah, you might have to 
<laughs> fight, but you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not simple, but I was looking at another article by one of my dear teachers, Wes Nisker. It's a, uh, and Wes, uh, was a, uh, practitioner of crazy wisdom. That is to say, he was a sit-down comic, as they call, would sometimes call him. And he's very clever. And, and he has an article uh, in this issue called War is Over, quoting the, the John Lennon song, which we think of as a Christmas song, <laughs> but it's actually War is Over if you want it. Uh, in any case, he quotes George Bernard Shaw, who said, we learn from history that we learn nothing from history, uh, which is a pretty good, pretty good line, you know. Um, I was thinking about all the wars that have happened since I was, I was born during the Korean War. <laughs> And when I was a kid, we thought war was kind of cool when I was like eight or 10 and we would play army, you know, but a lot of the, a lot of the boys here did that. A lot of the older boys, at least uh, until parents stopped letting their kids <laughs> play with guns. I don't know. My brother and I, my older brother, we had a scrapbook. We would put pictures of war, you know, like in 1957 or something, there were like tanks that went into Lebanon, you know, oh, look, you know, in war movies, right? Uh, it was all a big drama and a game. And, and I mean, I guess there's, you know, men, <laughs> you know, men, 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 men. I mean, this is the history of men, you know, and chivalry, right? And going and proving yourself as a man. That insanity. But, but you know, I came of age during the Vietnam War, and all of a sudden, it, it wasn't funny anymore, you know. And I wasn't interested in the least. You know? And I, I did a, a 180 there, and, uh, and I've stayed pointed in that direction. And frankly, you know, what I understood when I was 16 seems kind of elementary. That war is insane and there's no reason to do it. You know, I mean, that's a pretty simplistic approach to geopolitics, but it's a good starting point, you know. But if you will, we are addicted. You know, the same thing that drives us to drink and use and be addicts manifests as greed for power, greed for control, for land, for resources, hatred of others, you know, hatred of ideologies, delusion that uh, the war to end all wars, you know, the great phrase about World War One, you know, war, have a war to create peace. You know? These are all obsessions and madness, right? That 
we have the we have it all inside us. It's it doesn't it's not an accident. You know, it's not like we aren't implicated. You know, we we're you know the, I think it's the very first chapter of Jack Cornfield's book A Path with Heart. It's called Stop the War. You know, and it's about the war inside, the war inside ourselves, the war we have with ourselves, our self-hatred. And that comes out hating others. So I don't have an answer. I I mean, it amazes me that... that we go on thinking that something will be solved or that uh, we'll learn, you know, we'll learn something. Um, I mean, I actually had this ridiculous thought that I'm really grateful that the United States didn't start this war, (laughs) you know, because most of the wars in my lifetime, we started Korea and Vietnam Iraq, horrors. Anyway, so I'm not much of a mindfulness teacher right now or a meditation teacher right now. I uh, I find it confusing, really, to be someone who I feel like I am a, just an average, ordinary human being. I don't think that I am like... I am uniquely spiritual or enlightened. You know, I just feel like I'm a really normal, you know, (laughs) within reason human being. And it seems so obvious, like, I don't want to kill people, you know? I don't know how somebody can want to kill people. I mean, it's, again, I guess I'm just, I'm naive in some way. but uh, but the human race confuses me. <laughs> you know, and when I'm in the forest, in the little cabin, you know, in the in the empty hut at the foot of a tree, and it, you know, and it's hard to meditate for and be silenced and be away. But the world seems so fragile. The world is so fragile, you know, that, and I am so fragile. (laughs) Again, I don't think I'm more fragile than others. I just mean, you know, my body, you know, mind and body, you know, it's all so fragile and delicate. And it really needs so much care, you know. It's hard to be in a body. It's hard to live on this planet, you know, dukkha and hunger and all of it. And, And so to choose to make it worse, to make it harder, 
I don't know. I was sitting at breakfast this morning and uh, I was going to be meeting with a group at 10 and it was about 9.30 and I was reading the newspaper, which definitely, you know, a sign of my age that we receive the newspaper and I read the paper. Um, and, you know, it's, as I call it, the greed, hatred and delusion report. Uh, and then my house went boom. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, little earthquake. Okay. And somehow I, there was meaning in that for me that like, you know, you're in this like world of this newspaper and God, if you will, <laughs> is reminding me that, you know what, you're on this planet and you're dependent upon the earth beneath your feet. And if it so chooses, it can open up and swallow you up. <laughs> you know, it, uh, it, uh, it's a fragile world, you know, it's a fragile world we live in. There's a novel I was looking at yesterday at, um, at my local bookstore that's about uh, the 1906 earthquake, you know, and, uh, you know, anyway, I, I, I really apologize for, I, if you came on here hoping that you were going to like get some help with your recovery, uh, you know, I apologize if you're not feeling that you're getting that. Um, I'll, I'll, the other book, I'm just going to keep talking for a little while, then I'm going to open it up. But the other book that I picked up, and now I think I almost want to go back and buy it, was about John Muir, who was you know, a famous naturalist who sort of discovered Yosemite or whatever. And it was his notes. It was like his actual writing and him discovering trees that were 3,000 years old. <laughs> 3,000 years. And then, oh, here's a tree. It's, it's, it, this tree started growing about the time of Jesus, you know. It's 2,000 years old, you know. And they're like 35-foot diameter at the trunk and they're 300 feet tall and you go, Oh, okay. We're important. <laughs> We're really important. These guys like they saw Jesus. Hey, Jesus, <laughs> Muhammad. Hey, what's up? The crusades. Hey, the crusades is wild. What are you guys doing? Hey, uh, you know, <laughs> whatever. You know, they've seen it all, right? Napoleon, Hitler, the Declaration of Independence. And uh, and we're going to be gone and, you know, they'll be like, yeah, remember those beings that used to live out here? Yeah, they were a mess, man. I'm glad they're gone. Now all we've got is like deer and stuff. Those are nice. Um. No, but it's it's humbling, you know. 
to, to see that these, these beings, these trees, and they don't fight each other. You know? In fact, there's a beautiful book called The Hidden Life of Trees. This will be the last thing I say, God, because it's like not making any sense to me even. And I'm talking, so. The Hidden Life of Trees tells how trees interact underground and feed each other. And even like one of them, when one of them is in trouble, they like send stuff, send food to each other. You know, this, the guy who wrote it like discovers this stump that's green. And he's like, why is this stump green? It's dead. And then he realizes, no, it's being fed by the other, other trees, you know? So there, you know, because we have this idea, he talks about how we have this idea of like, oh, plant a tree and give it a lot of space because it needs space. And he was like, no, it turns out trees are much healthier when they're together, very close together. They protect each other from the wind. They protect each other from the sun. You know, when you go walk into the forest, you notice it gets cooler, you know, right? And, you know, if it's windy, you get behind a tree, right? <laughs> uh, when you're out in the middle of the field, it's like, wow, you know, and so just so interesting. Um, that they take care of each other, that there's this, what we could call love uh, amongst the trees. So maybe we should use them as an example. So um, there you go, that's it. <laughs> you can ask for your money back. <laughs> uh, Spirit Rock, please don't have that guy again. I'm sorry. Um, it's nice to see the people that I know here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.